very proud of our campus ministry this morning, and uh, so, so thankful to all of you who may have taken a student out to lunch, and you know, you can continue to do that anytime. Uh, that's always allowed for us to be neighborly and to break bread with one another. I thought Kay did a great job with the text from uh, Acts chapter 2, and if you didn't get a chance to hear that, let me recommend that you uh, can go to our website at westark.org or on the app, and you can find the sermon from this morning, and um, hear what Cade's six points are about the need for community. So I'm wearing my shirt tonight to, uh, to show my support. Uh, we are taking a look at the Holy Bible and the 12 steps, and these are the 12 steps that come from the, uh, uh, or originated with Alcoholics Anonymous, and then other groups were able to pick up those 12 steps and modify them and use them in a variety of different recovery and support groups to help people overcome addictions or, or make it through struggles, uh, grief recovery, depression recovery. There's a lot of application. Celebrate Recovery uh, decided to just take all of these and understand that all of them have at their core the principle of growing in the way God wants us to be. And this process of redemption and giving back, of, of overcoming denial, confessing sins, uh, finding a better way beyond the sins, and then giving back. And so they developed the 12, or they kept the same 12 steps in Celebrate Recovery. They attached specific Bible verses to each one, and then they developed the eight principles that go alongside that. Um, Last week, we took a look at step six, and, and what we're doing in this study is we're wanting to look at the biblical verse that's attached to this, what is the biblical principle at work here, and then we want to take that scripture, and we want to look at it in its context and find out what is being done with that scripture, what's being said with that scripture in the Bible. Now, step six goes along with step seven, and, and I, I, I want to show these two because they sound a lot alike. Um, step six says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. This is after the con confession of sins. James 4.10 goes along with that, saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Step seven then says we humbly ask him, being God, we humbly ask God to remove all of our shortcomings. So 5, 6, and 7 go together. 6 has to do with the readiness uh, uh, to, rem to have these removed. 7, we ask for our shortcomings to be removed by God's power. And 7 has attached to it this verse from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Okay, so uh, what is being said in 1 John 1, 9, is it a good scripture to attach to this step where we humbly ask God to remove all of our shortcomings? By the way, there are other resources that attach verses uh, to these 12 steps. On one of those that I've consulted frequently, and they'll, they'll attach uh, five or six different verses to each one, that this one, uh, I found a variety of options uh, at one website, at one resource. 
there were uh, different scriptures, and, and it seems to be the key words. Some were keying in on the idea of humbly, and so they attached verses like, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Um, here, I think the connection that the Celebrate Recovery program has made with 1 John 1, 9, you can tell if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins. What have they keyed in on? Ask. I think they've keyed in on the idea of the verb of asking. We have to ask. And confession in 1 John 1, 9, we've talked about confession in this 12-step process before, has to do with acknowledging or admitting. So, still, what we want to do here is we want to ask, is this, is this a good verse to attach to this? And the best way we're going to find that to be true or not is to take a look at what's going on. Why is John writing this statement in chapter 1, verse 9 of his first letter and what's being said? But you know, here's something to ask. Who says that John wrote this? Well, I'll tell you who said in a moment, but who wrote 1 John? When you look at 1 John, and you can go over to 1 John, we're going to camp out at the beginning of this letter. Uh, it's way back there in the back, and um, you're, uh, it'll be page uh, 1,368 if you've got a true Bible. And the, uh, uh, it just starts out, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, uh, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Who's the we? Well, nowhere in 1 John does the author identify himself by name. You, uh, we looked at some of James, we looked at some of Paul's letters, we looked at James, there will be some identification. Paul to the Ephesians, Colossians, whoever it may be. The author never identifies himself by name. In the second and third century, uh, you have church leaders like Irenaeus and Clement and Tertullian and Origen, and, and that's in chronological order, Irenaeus being the earliest of those. They all believed that John was the author. There, was not, there wasn't any debate in the second and third century. One of the uh, sources on that was um, a church leader named Polycarp. He was a Christian martyr. He would have been uh, of a generation younger than John, but close enough to John to have known John, and he, and he did. He, he personally knew John the Apostle, and, and he attributed this to John. We don't have anything he wrote, but these other church writers remember his words. So there's a strong tradition, a tradition close to the source that says, well, this is the work of John. Now, not only that, but when we start comparing phrases in John's letter to John's gospel, if it's not the same person, they're coming out of the same literary school. They're coming out of the same writing workshop because the phrases are so similar. Now, that 
doesn't necessarily mean it's a lock for John because Matthew's gospel and James's letter have a lot of phrases in common, especially in the sermons of Jesus. Still, uh, it's two different people, but you can see why one would influence the other, why Jesus might influence James because they grew up in the same household and James would be uh, using phrases that had to do with the teachings of Jesus. But when you take the, uh, the, close, um, uh, the close language combined with the witness of these early church leaders, that's, you know, you've got one verification. You, you're triangulating sources. You've got one good source of info that says John. You've got another indicated source that says John. But we really need that triangulation to pinpoint it, don't we? Well, we're going to give you that. I think this is a clue to the identity. This, the, the author of 1 John does not care to identify himself by name because that's not how he wants to be known. He's not identifying himself as their authority figure or as someone great and important. Instead, he wants them to know that this is the one, as he puts it, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and with our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is how the author wants to be known. He is one of those who was close to Jesus, so close that he heard. And by the way, you get in reading this that the indication, it's obviously Jesus, the word of life. The life appeared. We, we, we saw the life. We testify to it. And notice what senses are engaged that which we was from the beginning well John's gospel opens with uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God um, you can almost see first John as a cover letter to the gospel in some ways but they they heard that gospel okay I can hear what you say by having it reported to me by other people that which we have seen with our eyes, our own eyes, okay, now we're getting a little more firm, but I can think that I'm seeing things and not seeing reality. But what we've touched, that's in the flesh. That's real. Now, um, in Matthew 17, and I think there's more importance to this event than we often notice, and uh, it's a... It's a study that I'm becoming more and more fascinated with, and, and maybe we'll do more with it in the future. But in Matthew 17, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Of all the eyewitnesses to Jesus, three of them could testify before the resurrection that he was 
the Word become flesh, that He was the Son of God. So those three saw the Son of Man coming in glory before they died. They saw the glory. They had a preview of what was to come. So I think there's a connection between who this writer is, the, 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 the man who pins this letter, and, and, and does so not just because he has something that they need to hear or an edict or something that needs to be passed out to all the churches, but he's writing, as he says, to make their joy complete. He represents these eyewitnesses. And really, we've whittled it down to three. If, if there is a connection to the transfiguration, then we've whittled it down to three. Peter, James, and John. Unlikely it's Peter because he's probably gone. Unlikely it's James. He's probably gone at the time of this writing. John's the last one surviving. But he shares fellowship with all those other eyewitnesses. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. He's saying, I'm, let me break it down like this, because there's a lot of uh, $10 words in there. There's a lot of churchy language in there, even though this is a more recent translation. He's saying, um, we're telling you what we experienced because we want to share something in common with you. We don't want to be the only ones who hold on to this like it's some sort of secret information. We want to share it with you. We shared it with you a long time ago, he says to uh, his hearers, who he's going to call in chapter 2, he's going to call them dear children. He says, we shared it with you so we can have something in common with you. And he says, now our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Their joy will be complete when they come to know the Father and Jesus Christ as well. Okay, well, how does that work? Well... I'm going to use a lot of analogies tonight, and they're, they're never going to be perfect, and they're not going to be complete, uh, but it's going to get you thinking, maybe we're going to communicate along the same lines. You know, there's, um, there's always that moment where the parents uh, have this, there's a lot of tension for the parents and the child when the child brings home the, uh, you know, the, the man or the woman who's going to be the spouse, the future spouse, and it's like, oh boy, are we all going to get along? Now, if the parents have a son and he brings home the uh, girl to meet them and they say, we love her so much that if something happens between the two of you, we will claim her and disown you, you've won. Yeah, that's, that's like, yes, you've won. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's my fondest desire is to, to be at that point one day. But you, you, your joy is complete because it's like, okay. We're all going to be able to share something in common. In other words, we're all going to get along here. And what's going to make us get along is we all are on the same page. We're all striving for the same thing. Well, likewise, but in a much more important way, John is saying to these uh, in his letter, if we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and if you have that same fellowship and you hold to what we proclaim to you, then yeah, we're all going to get along and we're all going to be on the same page and that's going to be joyous. So his intent is to make sure that this common connection, this common bond is held together. And it's not a bond that's based in feelings. It's not a bond that's, I mean, feelings are great and that's part of it, but it's not just a bond that's based on, hey, look, can we all just, you know, 
send good vibes to each other? Can we all just agree? No, it's based on the, the, the core of what really, truly matters. And it's not being tampered with. That which we've heard, which was from the beginning. That which we've seen with our own eyes and looked at. And that which we touched with our hands, we proclaim that to you. And if you have fellowship with the one that we're talking about like we do, and you have fellowship with us, then we're all going to get along. This is going to be great. Because it's not, again, it's not a fellowship based on I like you and you like me and we're happy. It's a fellowship based on the eternal one. Okay. So what you have is you have this triangle of complete joy that he's describing here. And you have the Father and the Son at the top of the triangle, and you have the eyewitnesses that he mentions in, in the opening, verses 3 and 4. Those eyewitnesses who beheld things, who saw things. And by the way, all of this is very consistent with the Gospel of John, where the Gospel of John emphasizes over and over again that those who witness this are blessed, but those who did not see it with their own eyes but still believed... He says, you're not left out, and you're not unimportant, you're even greater. He says, because for you, it's not a matter of having to be convinced. For you, it's a matter of trust. Um, and then the dear children. So if notice at the bottom of the triangle, if the eyewitnesses, and that would include John, has fellowship with the dear children, they have fellowship with one another because they both have fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And the dear children have fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, because they have fellowship with the eyewitnesses. And the eyewitnesses have fellowship with the Father and the Son and Jesus Christ, and so do the dear children, because, again, their angle on the triangle connects that. I like the triangle. Uh, I, I've used the triangle a lot. Uh, my, my marriage counseling, people ask me if I do premarital counseling. The answer is No. Uh, because I figure there's a lot you need to learn about marriage that you're not going to learn until you get on the inside. And uh, I just, you know, I, I don't know what to say to you. You need to follow married people around and watch them and note the good ones and note the ones that aren't having a good time and just follow them for a while and see how they're doing. That, that's kind of the extent of my advice. The other advice that I give, you're going to get all my marriage counseling tonight, and that's a bonus. How about that? The other, the other advice I have is I, I draw a triangle young couples and I say imagine that you're the two points down there at the bottom of the triangle and God's at the top now here's the thing if I move both of those smaller points down at the bottom if I move them towards the top what happens to those two points they get closer together don't they there you go marriage counseling 101 from Benjamin that's it right there get closer to God you'll get closer to one another how about that all right Free marriage counseling. Didn't even know you are going to get that tonight. Here's what's going on. John is not marriage counseling. What he's talking about is he's talking about uh, Christian life counseling. He has just described a worldview where there are two ways. It is a world of black and white. No gray. Black and white. No, I'm not saying it's as absolute. Obviously, there's things that come up in our lives, things that we need to think over and say, you know, is this a good thing or, or not a good thing? But if I used John's worldview, I would say that even that 
conversation either goes on in the light or it goes on in darkness. Um, you know, I can work in my garage in the dark. I can do that. It won't be very productive, and it'll be painful, and it'll be take a long time, and you know, likely to shock myself or burn myself, uh, which I can do in the light just as well, but less of it. And, but I can work in the light, and guess what? Things go better. Because uh, I can see what I'm doing. Here, John has said that there is light and there is darkness. He picks this up in verse 5. He says, this is the message that we heard from him. Him who? Him, Jesus. And this is the message that we declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Well, maybe there's just a little bit. No at all there's no darkness if we claim to have fellowship with him but we walk in the darkness then we're we're lying and we don't live out the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son purifies us from all sin and we can miss out a lot because he's covering a lot of ground here here's what he's saying god is light if we walk in the light, see the little footsteps? If we walk in the light, then we're with God. Now, if we're over here walking in darkness, and we can do that, but God, God's not there. There's no darkness in God at all. Now, if we're walking in darkness, and, and, and by the way, walking, you understand, is a metaphor for the way we live. Walking is a metaphor for the way we conduct ourselves, the way we behave. Um, it's your ethics, it's your behavior. So if we're walking in light, that means we're behaving properly and doing what we're supposed to do. If we're walking in darkness, then that means that we're behaving inappropriately. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But if, so if we're walking in darkness and we claim that we have fellowship with God, he says, that's a lot. You can't do that. Why? Because God's not there. You cannot do that. It's, um, you know, an, another analogy uh, would be, um, I always love this. I always like to find uh, GPS coordinates on a map. And I like to find a spot maybe in the ocean or in Antarctica or something like that and just test my GPS and see if it will route me a route to get there. And the poor little computer will just stir and stir and stir. And it, you know, if it could think, it would say, you, you can't get there from here. You, know, you can't do it. There's no route. There's no roadway. Why? Because it's not there. This is what John is saying. You cannot walk in darkness and claim to have fellowship with God. You are moving in the wrong direction. Here's another analogy for you. I use a lot of analogies. Um, let's do football. I think we're all excited about that coming our way. Well, we're not all excited, but, you know, you either are or you aren't. Uh, see, light or dark. Um, you, 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 can, you, you, know, you can have the, in mind to get to the next down, and your team only makes it five yards. And now it's going to be second down. You didn't make the goal, but everybody in the stands is going to clap. Yeah, all right. Why? 
by some definition, you failed forward progress. You made it five. Now, if you start out, though, and you lose 20 yards and you're the quarterback, don't stand up going, hey, how about it, you know, good effort. It's only second down. No, you just made things harder. That's not the right way to do it. Uh, so John says that this idea that you can be in darkness and have fellowship with God and everything's just fine, no. So, for example, and he's going to be more specific about what that looks like, like hating other people. You can't walk in the darkness, say you're good with God, but I hate everybody else that loves God. He says that won't work. But if you are in the light and you're walking in the light, then you are getting closer to God. And guess what? You have fellowship with others who are walking along the same road. This is John's point here at the beginning of his letter. Now, he goes on from there to say some other things about light and darkness. Uh, in verse 9, he says, If we claim to be without sin, and we, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us of our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, one of the questions someone might rightly ask here is, does this mean that I have to confess that I have sins, or do I have to confess particular sins that I'm guilty of? The answer is yes. It's best to cover all of that. Now, at the same time, I don't think we're doing ourselves or anyone else any favor when we act as if the confession of sin is, well, you know, we're all sinners, we all fall, that's right, we all have a bad day. Mm -hmm. We could still be in denial about what's really keeping us in the dark. Someone can uh, be active in church, wanting to have a good relationship with God, and the whole time they're doing that, they have hatred towards others. I love that preacher story that uh, I heard. I don't know if it's a true story or what. It, the story still works. The missionary from Africa had been putting up pictures of all the people being baptized in Africa. In walks one woman in the church. She's looking at all that, and she's just going, I don't know. I don't know. She's just upset by it. She says, I don't know if I want to be in heaven with all the black people. And her friend standing next to her said, oh, don't worry. You won't have to worry about it. See, where, see you get it? Um, you, can, you, can, you can have all that, you know, oh, you're doing all the right things and everything. But you might be walking in darkness and not realize it. You've got you to gotta confess the sin so that the process of getting out of the denial, turning it over to God, letting him cleanse you. Now, now we... we tend to reduce this down to a momentary thing. God, I just sin, forgive me. God, I just sin, forgive me. And I think what we keep doing is we keep putting patches on our punctured tire and then we just keep driving over nails. Huh? Tire's out of air again, put another patch on it. Tire's out of air again, put another patch on it. I think what God wants to do is slow us down and say, listen, two things. One, let's get you a new tire your tire is so full of holes, we're going to trade that tire out. And then, let's stop running over nails. But we think that this confession process is just putting another patch on the tire. And it's so much more than that. Here's the way he describes it. 
He says, in the light, God is light. If you, you look at those verses we just read, verses uh, 8, 9, and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Go, go all the way back. Uh, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So in the light, we do live out the truth. So in the light, if you just go through all of that and look at what the characteristics of living in the light are, walking in the light, and what the characteristics of walking in darkness are, in the light, we have truth. We have the cleansing of the blood of Christ. We have the word. We have forgiveness. We have purification. In the darkness, all we end up with is self-deception, lies, and unrighteousness. And what's really troubling about that is, is that when you're in the dark, and you're really not sure what it looks like in the light, you may mistake the dark for light. You may just assume that's normal. That's the wicked thing about self-deception. Now, here's the great thing. No matter where you are in darkness, if the light is cast into the darkness, you'll see it. It's there. Uh, In the light, um, while we're walking in the light, that admission of sin, I mean, we notice it. We put the light on so that we can see to work. You know, when you're working on a project and you're doing something uh, very uh, delicate, maybe you're repairing something or you're working on something, you're going to turn the light on. Why? Because you want to see it. Now, you don't get upset because things are broken. You know that. You want the light so that you can see properly. We were working on uh, my, uh, my niece's husband who led our prayer this morning. We were working on his car this afternoon. And what did we do? We got a light and put it up there so we could see what was going on. When we walk in the light, we can see these things. We can admit that sin. We're aware of it. That is not something to be ashamed of. When we recognize that we have sinned, we have achieved something. Did you know that? That sounds strange, doesn't it? Sin is an achievement. Yes, it is. Because now you know what it is. A lot of people sin all the time, and they don't even know that it's sin. They just take it as normal. Thank God when you can recognize something as sin. That's your opportunity to confess it, to admit it, and to humbly ask God to remove it. Now get ready. Because he'll cause a big change in you when you're really ready to let go of that and stop running off into the darkness. Now, along the way in the light, we may stumble and fall, but this is where in chapter 2 he's going to talk about the purification of God's blood. I mean, when we've got that forward progress, even if we get knocked down, we're going to get another set of downs. Because the blood of Christ. We're, we're running in the right direction. But in the darkness, you're heading in the wrong direction. And people in the darkness will even deny that they're sinning. Now, the particular problem that John has here is he seems to be most troubled by the fact that there are those that are in the darkness that deny that they even have a problem with sin, that the things that they're doing, the ways that they're behaving are not even sinful. A lot of people try to figure out, what is this? Is this some sort of Gnosticism? Is this some sort of um, heretical teaching? Uh, you know, what exactly is it? Is it docetism? You know, we got a lot of fancy words for it. Don't worry about all that. Those words, you know, he doesn't use any of those words. 
Uh, it's a good conversation maybe sometime for study, but I think it applies to every situation you can imagine where in the light you've got the admission or the confession of failings and shortcomings, and in the darkness you have denial and self-deception. And whether it's one particular sin or whether it's a lot of... Now, now keep in mind, this isn't just about the path to salvation. And I don't want this sermon to contribute to some sort of situation where for the next few days you're going to be worrying, oh, what if I reached the, the judgment throne of God and I had this one sin back there in the ledger that I never asked forgiveness for? Oh, no, I'm going to hell on a technicality. That's not walking in the light. That's not the way God works. What we all need to do in hearing this is, is, is turn away from all darkness, go to God, humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings. I, you know, if I'm, I, may be do, I may be committing sins or I may be doing things that, that uh, bad habits, things that are wrong, things that hurt other people, and I may not even be aware of it right now because I'm in denial. Now, I... And not so much concerned that God is going to judge me for that if I die tomorrow. I'm more concerned that, that, that I have the listening ears and the listening heart so that as God convicts me of that, I am able to repent of it. And I think if we open ourselves up to the fact that living in the light means that God is, I mean, notice that blood is there continually purifying us for sin, not covering it over. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Here's another analogy. So I'm working on this room at our house. I've got these spots that I have to paint and different things like that. Some of them, I'm going to go up and I'm going to put a coat of paint on it. And you know what? What was back there? What was behind there? It's still there, but it's covered over. You don't see it. Some of it, though, it's stuff that I don't want back there. There's some drywall down there that I'm like, okay, I'm taking that out because it, you know, the ants were eating it up and it's got mold and it's water damaged. I am taking it out. Why? I don't want it growing anymore. It's going away. That's purification. Purification is when you remove the corruption. You remove whatever it is that's destroying and corrupting that which is good. Notice that the blood of Christ doesn't just cover us over like another coat of paint. He says it purifies us from unrighteousness. Isn't, aren't those the words that he uses? Yeah. He will not only forgive our sins. You see, sometimes we stop right there. God, I messed up. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I'll forgive you. And I'll remember it no more. Boy, that's great. I will, but at least he won't. That, that's like... Um, getting it expunged you know it never happened well yeah it did but it's not on your record here he says that we go one step further not only do we get forgiveness we get purification and this is the kind of the two sides of salvation you've got justification that makes us right so that we can even have a relationship with God you and I don't deserve to have a relationship with God because of anything we've done we get justified because Jesus Christ has uh, spanned the gap. He's, he's, you know, brought the two parties together. There's reconciliation. Great. But then there's this other side of salvation, sanctification. 
that God's changing us. He's working on us. He's, he's redeeming us. You know all those shows they have on TV where those people find some old rusty mechanical item or something? I think American Restoration is the most popular one. I'm always amazed at how much all that costs, you know, and when it's all, when it's all said and done. But those guys will take something, they'll just repair it, they'll renew it. God's in the restoration business. He didn't just save you from the junk pile and then throw you off into a cabinet somewhere. He's saving us from the junk pile of this world. And he's, 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 he's going to go as far with the restoration as we're willing to let him. But we have to admit it. So I think, uh, you know, this is a choice of two completely different directions. On the path of light, you're still going to fall. You're still going to have problems. You're still going to need to be purified. It is a process. The day you were baptized, you were cleansed. You were forgiven. You weren't made perfect. You just don't have any of that old self hanging on anymore, locking you down. Well, guess what? You're going to start moving forward in the light, and not every step is going to be a good one. Think about it again, another analogy. When a little kid learns to walk, you know, and everybody talks about that moment when they saw the kid walk, you know. Oh, the first step. Well, the first steps are never that great. I mean, they're not. It's like, I mean, and here's the thing that I, as I get older, I start work walking a lot more like that, you know. And it's like, boy, every step is just measured, you know, and I'm, I'm careful. And the thing is, I don't get any kind of, you know, big excitement from that. Nobody cheers me on and takes photos of me when I get up off the floor, which is a major accomplishment some days. But that's because God's not done with us. We may take a few stumbly steps at first. We may take stumbly steps later on. But it's the direction that we're going. That's what it's all about. And then we learn more. And then we learn how to do other things. And my, my knees may not be as strong as they used to be, but guess what? My hands are stronger than ever because I use them in the place of the knees all the time. So that's fantastic. Keep going. You keep going in the right direction. But if we deny all that, then we miss out on the opportunity to have God restore us into something wonderful. So, yeah, step seven, if we confess our sins... In different language, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Uh, well, anyway, I thank you for your attention to this study. Tonight, if anyone needs to uh, take communion, that's uh, been prepared in room 100. We're going to sing this song and then be dismissed in prayer. And um, Okay. Jesus for the cleansing power, are you washed in the blood?